that's what we're going to look at this morning. Why is Easter such good news? So if you have your place in, in Romans, it, it, if, if you don't have your Bible with you, it's in your bulletin. If you don't own a Bible that you can understand, we've got some we'd love to give to you. So grab one either right now or on your way out. In any case, let's stand in honor of God's word. That's our habit here. We're in Romans 5 this morning. We're going to be reading verses 6 to 11. This is God's word. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For no one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is God's word is given so that you and I would flourish. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we come into this place with lots of stuff. Most of us are, are, uh, I mean, it's a busy day, full of family. For a lot of us, we're thinking about uh, the meal later, probably, or, or um, everything that's been going on. Some of us are just still trying to get over the amount of children that just walked out of the room. We ask for your grace, that you would just open our hearts for something that for many of us is, is just a day that comes every year. We ask that you would renew our wonder at what we celebrate today, a risen and exalted Savior a work that is finished, a debt that is canceled, a cup of wrath that is poured out and empty for those that are in Christ Jesus. Let us wonder at that this morning. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Have a seat. All right, Easter, big deal. I mean, I think most of us believe that. I think if we're being honest, we probably think Christmas is a bigger deal, though historically Easter is a much bigger deal than Christmas, but we just spend a lot more time getting ready for Christmas. So, uh, I mean, we get dressed up. We, we, uh, I saw the flood girls had hats. Y'all ladies just got missed because the flood girls had hats. Uh, can tell it's Presbyterian church. No hats. All right. But here's what I know about you, even though I may not know you. You probably go through much of life relatively unreflectively. You just go to the next thing, right? I know that about you because I know that about me. And it's true of most of the folks I know. And what this means is we end up going through the motions because it's what we've always done or what our parents did, but we never think about why. And that is especially true when it comes to issues of spirituality, religion, faith. Here in the valley, you know, we talk about Jesus dying, talk about his resurrection, but do we even know why it's a big deal? I mean, there's no other religion that is so utterly focused on its founder than this one. I mean, sure, they, everyone, everyone kind of, any kind of world religion is focused on what their founder said. But Christianity is so dogged about what Jesus did. And so what we're going to see this morning is simply this, right? Out of love, Jesus died for his enemies to make them his friends. That's it. Out of love, Jesus died for his enemies to make them his friends. And if you're a note taker, there's an outline. If not, don't worry about it, okay? So let's get into this. Because that's a bold statement, right? Out of love, Jesus died for his enemies. I mean, that kind of uh, reeks of the angry God so much 
that's present in stereotypical Christian preaching, but stick with me because I, it's, it's a little different than what you think, okay? So let's, let's look down at this passage real quick because Paul gives three descriptors of us in these first two verses, verse six and, and then actually the first three verses, verses six through eight. Look at them. He says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And then he says, God shows his love for us and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And later he's going to say uh, the word enemies again, but let's, uh, or the word enemies, but these words flesh that out. So first let's, let's break them down. First week. What does that word mean? Well, I mean, we know what we're, what we mean when we say weak, but another way of translating it is powerless. Okay. Not just weak, like uh, a little less able, but powerless. It means, it means ultimately having no ability to do anything. To be weak and powerless is to be able to offer nothing, nothing. And then Paul says this, and next he says, ungodly. Not only are we weak, but we are ungodly. Now, that is a super churchy word, right? I mean, no, no, but, I mean, maybe a couple of us, but not many of us are using that in our everyday language. The other way that you can translate this is even more churchy. It, it can mean godless. We were godless. And in the New Testament, this is a kind of an incredibly pejorative term. To be described as godless is not a good thing. And that is because, according to the Bible, you and I were made for a dependent relationship with God. And made to reflect God as those made in his image. And so to be godless is to be both out of relationship with him and utterly failing at imaging him in the world. It's out of relationship and failing to be like him in the world. And then we have the S word, right? Sinner. And that word has tons of cultural baggage with it, doesn't it? For most of us, being a sinner means um, failing at the culturally accepted morality. Right? Not quite getting your behaviors right, whatever the culturally acceptable morality is. In, in traditional culture, that has to do with like sexuality and substances in the, in, the, in the kind of the new morality of which the folks in the traditional morality believe is immorality, but it's not. It's just a different morality. It has more to do with like ecology and economics and affirmation. But when we say that, it means violating those moralities. For most of us. In other words, you become a sinner because you sin. You violated some morality. But Jesus actually has a different way of talking about it. It's actually key to this passage. Because uh, in Matthew 15, one of the gospels, right? There's four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first of those gospels in chapter 15, Jesus says that our behavior actually springs up out of our hearts. That out of our hearts come all of these bad things that we talk about all the time, all these things that come out and they, they, all the bad stuff we do comes out of our hearts, which means that we aren't sinners because we sin. It's that we sin because we're sinners. It's what we do because of who we are, not who we are because of what we do. Because you see in the Bible, sin isn't so much a moral category. It has that component. It's a relational one. It's not so much about your morality as, you, as it is a relationship. To be a sinner is to be independent of God. And, and that's an, a very key category because some of us, most of us, I would guess, in this room, act independent of God in a very different way than we would normally consider sin. Because some of us, we do that through our behavior, our good behavior. We are very 
we, some of us in this room are very moral people, way more moral than me, like great people. Like you are, you are disciplined. You are awesome. You get the rules when you know what's right, you do it and you argue with everyone else over which it is. Right. But the problem is, is that you do that because you're trying to gain a status for yourself apart from God. I'm the good boy. I'm the good girl. I do the good thing. That's independence. The Bible actually calls that sin. Others of us, more like me, uh, enact it through our, our, our wanderings, our going away from God, right? Seeking satisfaction apart from him. That is also sin. But Paul's point is that this is all of us. Did you notice he says the word we? Not you, we. According to the Bible, that is all of us by nature. It isn't those people out there. It's these people everywhere. But it isn't just about us being enemies. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Here's something that's easy for us to miss because of our English translations. Four times in these verses, in these first three verses, four times Paul uses the phrase, on behalf of. Christ died on behalf of the ungodly. One will scarcely die on behalf of a righteous person. Though on behalf of a good person, one might dare to die. And while we were still sinners, Christ died on our behalf. And so if you're going to stack four of those kind of little phrases on top of one another in three verses, that, if you're reading the Bible, that's going to tell you, this is, this is probably an important idea. So let's break that down. On behalf of means, in the New Testament, in the place of. It means in the place of. And think about that for a minute. Because you see, this is the core of Christianity. The core of Christianity is not a list of to-dos. The core of Christianity is that phrase, on behalf of. And this is why we are so dogged about Easter. In the Bible, being a sinner, being godless, isn't about rules, it's about relationship, it's about betraying a person. And you've been betrayed, you know what that's like. Maybe you didn't call it that. Maybe you just called it being offended, or being hurt, or whatever, but some relational violation. You know what that's about. Paul here is saying that the betrayed person died on behalf of the one that betrayed him. And the, the entire point in verse 7 is that you and I can imagine, we can, we can get it in our heads that you would do this for a good person, right? The noble sacrifice. I'm going to give myself for, for these people over here because they're, they're good folks and they're worthy of this. But he says, that, that is something that still not many would do, but we can imagine it, right? We can imagine doing it for a good person. But in fact, in fact... What this passage is pointing at is about doing that for an enemy, about someone unworthy, about someone who wants nothing to do with you. How about that? Can you imagine that? Look at what Paul says. He says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the important part of this verse is three words. First, shows. The, in the original, because uh, the New Testament was written in Greek, not in the King's English. Uh, in the original, that word shows means proves. It means proves. It's not, it's not just like illustrates. 
It's a proof. He proves his love. And we'll get to why in a second. The second is we. Again, Paul is not talking about those bad sinners out there. He's talking about us. In fact, he's including himself in that. This is an early Christian writer. In fact, this is one of the, uh, you know, he wrote like half the New Testament. And a guy who said that before he uh, became a follower of Jesus, his moral record was spotless. And he's including himself in the we. Then he says, while we were sinners. Finally, he says, still. See, this is the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Ready? It's all in that word. Still. You see, other faiths, other belief systems give you a, a, a path to work towards. Like a way to get back. In any sense, if God is gracious, if God is merciful, it's because he's laid out the way to go for you. And you just have to do the thing. And if you do the things, then he will kind of meet you. In fact, the, the, kind of the, the best possible experience of that is like, if you're good and sincere... Some of us believe this, right? If you're sincere enough, if you think the right things, maybe you're trying hard, then God will meet you halfway. Maybe he'll meet you halfway and say, you know, yeah, you're off on this, this, and this, but you're trying really hard, and I really appreciate that. Christianity, though, says something different. It says while you were a sinner, while you were still powerless, when you were still godless, Jesus died in your place. Christianity tells you what God did to get to you when you could have cared less. Do you remember what that's like? Some of us do because we're there right now. I didn't grow up in the church. I remember what it's like to care less about him. To care less about Jesus, to think he was a fraud, to care less about God. You remember what that's like? Maybe not. That's okay. But let me ask you something. How do you view yourself? See, if you're not a Christian here this morning, or maybe you consider yourself one, how do you view yourself? Because my guess is, is that it's probably not the way Paul does. That seems to be like having bad self-esteem, which is like one of the chief sins of our culture. Paul says an enemy of God is someone who is independent of God, wants nothing to do with him and has nothing to offer him. But see, when you and I think of the word enemy, especially enemy of God, that's when the angry God image clicks into our head, right? We think of ourselves as as relatively passive. And God's the angry one. Like he's up there and he's raging because we're not, but like we don't, we're kind of passive in the whole thing. I mean, sure. I mean, you don't think you're enemies with God, right? I mean, it's not like you want him dead or something. But we think this because we have a skewed view of ourselves in relation to God. So listen, let me, let me change the metaphor a little bit. If, if you're married, this will make sense. If, if you're not, I want you to imagine for a second that you are. But if you're married and you're simply indifferent towards your spouse, right? Don't really care much about them. Don't respond to their invitations to relationship and seek to fill your life with other people besides them. Would we call that being friendly towards your spouse? How's that going to go over? Right? How's that going over over Easter dinner? We would call that being an enemy. Now, some of you are like, Rick, come on, that's apples and oranges. Actually, it's not. Because the Bible actually teaches that marriage, the marriage relationship, is meant to reflect Jesus' relationship with his people. 
So to say, yeah, I believe in God, but then for that to have no impact on your life. Or to say like, yeah, I mean, I'm a follower of Jesus, but to have no love of God or intimacy with him is saying like, I mean, yeah, I'm married, but living like you're single or showing up to clean the house or fix the car, but treating your spouse like they're not really there. Just kind of hanging out. See, according to the Bible, every one of us by nature wants God as our enemy. We don't want him as he is. We want independence from him. But let me ask you something else. How do you view God? Maybe you don't view yourself the way that was said here, but how do you, how do you view God? Because culturally we have a view of God in, in, in which he is either consistently angry, looking for a reason to kind of squish us, like throw lightning bolts at us and get us. And so he needs to be appeased by our religious activity. Or the other view is that he's really distant and doesn't really care about what's going on. Like either, either we have to do stuff to get him to kind of be okay with us, right? Or he doesn't really care. I mean, why would he care about what I'm doing? But look again at what Paul says. See, on the one hand, God, he says God cares a good bit. The entire force of what Paul is saying in this verse in these verses only makes sense if what we do actually offends him. In other words, what that, what that means is we matter to him. We matter to him. I mean, I mean, think with that. I, if some random dude comes up on the street and like cusses you out, you're going to be like, who are you? But it's not really going to impact you. But if someone you love does that, if someone you care about does that, if a family member, a good friend someone like that does that, it matters a lot more because they matter to you, right? And so to say that God is somehow offended is not to say that he's just angry and mean. It means he cares. It means that you matter to him. But on the other hand, his love for us isn't conditioned on our posture towards him. Paul says that God's love for us is proved. Now listen, this is This is important. It's proved, not created. It's proved in the fact that Jesus died. It was proved in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Not the fact that Christ died for us so that God's love for us could be created. You see the difference? It was proved. In other words, the entire point of verses 6 to 8 is that there is nothing that should draw God to us. Nothing that should do that. Nothing that would justify his love for us. He does not love us because we're lovable. He loves us. And that makes us lovable. And he proved it in Jesus. That is the God of the Bible. So out of love, Jesus died for his enemies. But now let's look at what that accomplished. Look down at verse 9. Man, these verses down here are just chock full of churchy words. By the way, I'm, I'm going to say something real quick because I just heard, I just heard this. Um, parents, this is your kid's sanctuary too. Okay? It's okay if they're enjoying themselves. Okay? I know for some of us, we're like, I'm not used to churches with all these kids. You hang out for a little bit. You'll get used to it. All right? 103 kids, fifth grade and under. We, we, we got them. So, but don't, don't get stressed. This is your kid's church too, all right? So out of love, Jesus died for his enemies. Let's look at what that means. 
All these churchy words. Paul says in verse 9, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? Now, don't check out on me, because I know that as soon as we say the word wrath of God, some of us are like, like, this is what I hate about Christians. Why does God always have to be so dang angry? But listen, some of you heard me say this before, but I'm going to say it again. We're not opposed to God being angry in general, right? As a matter of fact, if, if we didn't think that God was angry about like child abuse and genocidal maniacs and people who shoot up malls, we would think he was a monster, wouldn't we? It's not that we have a problem with God being angry in general. It's that we have a problem with him being angry at us because we're pretty good. He shouldn't be angry at me. Go be angry at Putin. Like be angry, but not at me, right? Why would you be angry at me? What we don't like is that he might have wrath for us. But look at this verse because it undercuts our concerns. Paul says that we have been justified by his, that is Jesus' blood. Now, the word justified is a, is a theological term. It's a technical term. And so that's normally the place in which we kind of just gloss over and we keep reading and hope that we can figure it out one day. What it means is, it means to be made right with God. Okay? That's all it really means. To be made right with him. To be justified is to be put in the right. From the wrong into the right. Okay? So when we place our faith in him, we are justified. Why? Because the New Testament teaches that Jesus bore the wrath of God in the place of his enemies. And so when we place our faith in him, Jesus is reckoned with our sinful record and we are given his perfect perfection before God. That is what the cross is and that's why it proves God's love. It's an event that makes us right with God. But, Paul continues, how much more will we be saved by him from God's wrath? Okay, here's what it means and how it connects to Easter. Jesus died in the place of sinners. We got that, right? If Jesus stays dead, <laughs> if Jesus stays dead, we're all in trouble. See, the resurrection of Jesus is not simply the biggest miracle, right? It's not simply like, well, he walks on water, he heals the sick, and oh, by the way, he can also overcome death. He must be God. No, that's, that's not what it means, okay? If it, what it does is it says it is God's not guilty verdict on Jesus, it says that what he set out to do, to rescue sinners from the judgment we are due, was accomplished. If Jesus remained in the grave, all that we have is a tragedy. And some of us are here this morning, and we've been in churches before in which uh, people have told you, like, oh, you know, the resurrection, really that's about an experience we have. I, I got nothing on that, if I'm being honest with you, because that's not what the word resurrection means. It's not what it means now, and it's not what it meant to those who first wrote this book. Resurrection in the ancient world did not mean going to heaven when you died, and did not mean have a warm fuzzy. It meant a body that was dead is now up and walking around. That is what it meant. And when Paul says that over 400 at one time saw him, he wasn't saying like they had a mass hallucination, they were smoking too much, and it just came to them. What he's saying is, is that Jesus appeared to these folks in bodily form. He ate fish, 
He could be touched. He's not a ghost. He's raised. Since he was raised, that means that the wrath that we have earned is finished. You see, there's a day coming when God will make things right. When all the things that are wrong, all the stuff that Abe was talking about, the stuff we see that just seems like it's going out of control, that he's going to take all of that and make that right. And if you've placed your faith in Jesus, and I know not everyone in this room has, but if you've placed your faith in Jesus, then that has already been done for you in him. There is nothing left to fear on that day. That is why Paul can say, how much more, if we've been justified, then certainly we will be saved, we will be delivered. But it's not just about a verdict. Look down at verse 10. Paul continues. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. This notion of reconciliation is huge. And again, like so many things I've talked about this morning, it is completely unique to Christianity. And because of that, we don't have a category for it. Because reconciliation presupposes that the issue is not us performing for the deity. Right? It's not about blanket obedience. It's not about doing the right things, getting the pillars right, going on the path. It's not about that. It's not about us reaching a moral standard. Because reconciliation is not about whether you keep rules. Reconciliation is a relational category. It's about two people being at odds, now not. It's something completely different. And that means that the work of Jesus isn't just to get your sins forgiven. It's to restore your relationship with God. But that raises the question, why did Jesus' death reconcile enemies? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Okay. Because you see many of us struggle here because we think to ourselves, you know, why can't God just forgive and get over it? Why, why, why the death? Why the barbaric stuff? Why, why can't he just forgive and move on? But listen, because in the Bible, this is really important. Forgiveness and reconciliation go hand in hand. In fact, reconciliation and forgiveness go intimately together. They're always together. Forgiveness is not pretending something didn't happen. That's called lying. And it's not just quote unquote getting over it, which really means um, just waiting until your anger fades. Kind of. And some of us have been waiting for a long time for that, haven't we? We're still waiting with all these people that we think have wronged us. Forgiveness is the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. It isn't just, I'm not going to make you pay for what you've done. It's also, you can once again be in relationship with me as if it didn't happen. Notice the difference. Because some of us do forgiveness with, you can be back in relationship with me, but I got my eye on you. Right? I've got my eye on you. I'm, I'm nervous about what you're going to do next. I don't trust you. I'm afraid of you being hurtful again to me. So we can be in relationship, but I got you. 
forgiveness and reconciliation is we can be back in relationship as if that never happened. As if I am now willing to trust you fully and completely just like I did before I was originally hurt. Do you see why it's the betrayed person bearing the weight of that betrayal? Because that's scary. That's risky. You're putting yourself in harm's way again. Maybe it's going to happen again. The betrayed person is bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayed one. Can I tell you, that is what Jesus did on the cross? He bore the weight of our betrayal of God. Is God bearing the wrath of God in our place? Bearing the weight of our betrayal, the betrayed person bearing it, his own judgment for us. And he does this, not so we can go on our way with no consequences, whistling as we go. Not so like we get the get out of hell free card. He does it so that we can be back in a dependent relationship with him. Back in an intimate relationship with him. Loved by him and loving him. And then Paul goes on and hits this notion of saved. And that is a really churchy word, especially in the valley, right? Because we ask people all the time, well, I don't. Some of, yeah, you hear it all the time. Like, are you saved? Have you been saved? All these things. Just, just listen to what this means. You see, the work of Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin. It does. We are justified. Most people, when they say the word saved, that's what they mean. Okay? Saves us from the penalty of sin. We are made right before God. But it doesn't just do that. It also saves us from the power of sin, which is to say it is broken in our lives. You don't have to do that anymore. Not saying you'll never sin again. I'm saying you don't have to. And some of us are like stuck there. Like, yes, I do, Rick. You don't, you don't know. I, I do. I don't feel like I have any power over it. If the Holy Spirit of God is in your life, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, if, it can, if he can conquer death, he can certainly conquer your habitual behaviors. Yes, the power is there. So it saves us from the penalty. It saves us from the power. But also one day it, he will be sa- we will be saved from the presence of it when Jesus comes to make all things right again. See, the resurrection of Jesus, his current life, his resurrected life is right now a down payment of that world, the world where sin does not exist, the world that God is going to make, a world where all of our relationships line up the way they're supposed to, where there is no friction, there is no betrayal. A world where sin and pain and death and evil is no longer present. And the resurrection of Jesus is God's down payment, his first installment on that world. It is coming. And if God can reconcile us as enemies to himself, he can certainly do that. Now, I want to wrap up this morning with uh, Paul's use of this word. Um, There we go. Paul's use of the word now, twice in this passage, because I think we need to wrestle with it, whether you're a Christian or not. He says the word now. He says it first in regards to justification and then in regards to reconciliation, right? Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved? While we were enemies, we've been reconciled. We were now that we are reconciled, right? Now, So why does this matter? When Paul uses the word now, the the weight, the pressure, the force of it is that you no longer have to wonder. You no longer 
have to wonder. Listen, if you're not a Christian here, maybe, maybe you believe in God. Maybe it's some kind of vague higher power as you understand him. But, but you think, look, I'm not perfect, but I do okay. God will accept me in the end. How do you know? How do you know you've done enough? How do you know that the cosmic scales will ever be in your favor? Will it be enough? What about tomorrow when you cut off that person in traffic? Or that person cuts you off and you um, do some sign language? Right? What about in an hour when you're at home trying to make lunch and your kids rush in, if you have kids, and they're, they're complaining because food's not ready yet and you lose it again? What about tomorrow night? Your spouse goes to bed late or goes to bed and you're up late. You're clicking on websites you shouldn't. What about later today when it's just, just one more drink? Just one more thing? What about when you pressure your accountant to just kind of leave? Can you just leave off that number out of the old tax return? Since they're not due till tomorrow? How much is enough? See, if your acceptance by God is based on you, how do you know when it's enough? What if I told you that you could know right now that you are accepted by God? Right now. What if I told you that you could know right now that God is pleased with you? Not just tolerating you, but pleased with you. And what if I told you that you didn't have to do anything for it? And because you didn't have to do anything for it, you can't do anything to lose it. What would you say? My guess is what you'd say is, sounds nice, but that's my guess because that's what I often say. And some of you are like, what? You're the pastor? You're supposed to have all this stuff together? I know, right? Listen, I'm tempted every day to think that I am right because of what I do and that God loves me because I do right. And that is why Jesus is such a big deal to Christians and why this church will always talk more about what he has done than what we are supposed to do. Because without what he has done, we are done. If you struggle with guilt, listen to me, Jesus is enough. Because he bore all the wrath that your sin deserved on the cross. You cannot out that. You cannot stand at the foot of that and say it's not enough. You place your faith in him and there is no more wrath for you. Gone, done, it is finished. That's what Jesus said before he gave up his spirit and he meant it. If you struggle with shame, listen to me, Jesus is enough. Because while you were jacked up, not not when you started to look pretty, not when you cleaned yourself up to come here, while you were messed up, he proved his love for you. He proved it. You don't have to clean yourself up because you weren't cleaned up when, you hit, when he died. That is the glory of Easter. We celebrate the work that has been accomplished on our behalf in our place for us so that we can receive it and rest in it because Jesus died for us while enemies so that he could make us his friends. Would you pray with me? And now, Lord, we do ask that you would make this real in our own lives. Some of us here have 
have never placed our faith in Jesus. And so I ask boldly right now, because I'm not ashamed to, to say that's what I want for them. I pray that you would work in them right now, that they would. Or maybe it's just a little bit. Maybe, maybe you're willing to work enough to make them intrigued and make them think like, huh, that's different. And so I just ask that you would give, give faith because it is the gift that you give. For others of us who've walked with Jesus a long time, boy, are we tempted to think at times that we have to do stuff to keep you happy with us. I pray that you would put that as far out of our minds as we could have it. Even if just for today, would you let us rest in the glory that your smile is on us because of Jesus? That because you declared over him, this is my son in whom I am well pleased and we are united with him, now that declaration rests on us as well. And in that, let us delight and play as your loved, accepted children. Jesus, you rose from the dead to make us your friends, your family. We give you praise and glory for it. Our voices are never enough. Receive though what we offer by your grace with the joy we offer in Christ's name, amen.